0: Make your way, if you will, to Matthew chapter 28 in your Bibles. Last week we observed the Lord's Supper together. Jesus directed His followers to routinely observe this memorial meal so that by it we may proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, until He returns. Jesus ordained, as we know, a second ordinance for His church to observe, and that is the rite of baptism in water. Now, we routinely consider the ordinance of the Lord's Supper together in our services. Usually, our pattern is to consider baptism at our baptismal services, which are take place before uh, our morning services on a Sunday morning when we have that opportunity not all of you are there or have ever been to a baptismal service that's when we normally talk about these things but I like to pause in our schedule from time to time as a church to consider this ordinance this um, observance of baptism together in this setting as we gather in full assembly Now, this topic is going to hit us in many different ways. There are some here, you are not yet ready for baptism. You need to carefully consider what God says about this ordinance that you might understand when, in His grace, He leads you to the place where you are ready for baptism. Your danger in this message today will be to hurry what God is not ready for you to do, or what you are not ready to do as you honor Him. There are others here, you are ready for baptism. You have been born again and you know it. You need to act. And so I hope in this message to persuade you to obey Jesus Christ. I think the danger for you will be to hear these words today and to continue on in inertia. That is, to not move, to not do anything differently than what you're doing. Now, most of us that are here have already obeyed Jesus and have been baptized after we placed our trust in Him for salvation. My hope for you is that you will gain in appreciation for baptism as I do each time that I think about this truth, but specifically, I hope that you'll be encouraged as you hear the word of truth once again. Secondly, that you will join me in spirit this morning and realize that what we are doing here is a little bit of Uh, foundational cleaning. It's not a whole lot of fun sometimes to clean the basement, and I don't mean to in any way put this uh, doctrine down in that sense to say that it's under the earth and not beautiful. It is very beautiful, but we know all about it. We're very familiar with baptism, but what we need to do as a church from time to time is to see ourselves not simply as us here as an assembly, but realize that we relate to a broader world. And in that broader world, the doctrine of baptism is very confused. And so it is important for us as a church to maintain the foundation, not to permit it to calcify into simply a maintenance of the ritual, but rather for us to labor together to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the endeavor here that you have as a baptized member of the body of Christ. But I hope, thirdly, then, to encourage you to enthusiastically participate in the ordinance of baptism within the context of our assembly. You say, I've already been baptized, but we do participate when we view others who are being baptized. And that is a very important part of our life together as a church and of our honoring this truth that God has given to us. Whatever your experience then, I'm speaking to people coming from very different directions and that makes for a challenge here this morning. It'd be easier to speak to one of those three groups at a time. But as I speak to all of us, we are seeking to defend the truth that has been delivered to us and to consider this ordinance here as we stop uh, periodically to do so as a church. Let's ask then, first of all, why should anyone be baptized? And again, if you have been baptized and you've thought through this many times, think about how you would put that to someone who has come to you for counsel. Someone who has said, I'm considering baptism, I I really don't know if I should be baptized. Why should a person be baptized? We find in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, our first, and I think in many respects, primary reason As we've considered it often, let's note again Matthew 28, verse 16. I'll not linger here long, but let's remember again. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a very bold, strong statement. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is a clear commission here to baptize those who come to saving faith in Christ. As new believers, we should be baptized simply because Jesus wills it. Notice that the text does not say here, In verse 19, make disciples of all nations. It does not say, go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name. It says, make disciples, and those who have come to be followers of Jesus Christ, those people you baptize. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Mark puts this just a little differently. Those within the, uh, that were participating in the adult class this morning, this will be uh, you, you'll have this all figured out. Or we're working on it anyway. A little bit differently as he puts it here, which raises many questions, but it's very clear what Jesus is saying here in Mark 16, verse 15. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Same message. Verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We see again that baptism does not precede, that is, come before saving faith. Jesus does not say whoever is baptized and later comes to belief. He says whoever believes and is baptized... Now notice that there are two responses here in verse 1. There are those who believe and are baptized, and there are secondly those who do not believe. The unbelievers are condemned not because they fail to be baptized. They are condemned because they fail to believe. And because they fail to believe, they are, in consequence, also not being baptized. But there are just two categories here of people. So we see very clearly, to make it simple, why should we be baptized? Because Jesus wills it. He commands it. Secondly, the New Testament church practiced it. Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died and risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. We come to Acts chapter 2 and we pick up the account of his early followers, who are at this point all Jews. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them." Peter explains what has happened to these individuals, that this is, in fact, has been prophesied in the Old Testament to take place to the followers of God, to His people. In fact, now the Spirit has come, they have been baptized in the Spirit, as Jesus has poured the Spirit out upon these early believers, Peter preaches this message, and we turn to verse 38, where he turns directly to the imperative of the message, to the command. Here's what he says to his listeners. Verse 38 Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's so much here that we will not take time to unpack. It is very interesting to note, for instance, the connection here between baptism and the Holy Spirit and his baptism, and that Peter realized this, saw that this would be the case, and he calls them then to repentance. Repentance, in fact, is presented here by Peter as the means by which the Holy Spirit is received. That is, when there is repentance, the Holy Spirit baptism will come. And connected to that repentance, they are to be baptized. Now, that's not confusing at all, is it, when you put it up against Matthew 28 and verse 19? Make disciples of all nations and baptize them. Peter says in this first message of the early church, repent and be baptized. They follow very beautifully together. Verse 41, we see the response of those who listened, those who accepted his message. And again, do you see the connection? There's the reception of the message. Those who received his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. We move to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 2, to the best of our knowledge, it would seem that it would have been indicated otherwise, if that wasn't the case, all are Jews. All of these who have been baptized are Jews. We come to Acts chapter 10, and we realize that within the church there will be the inclusion of Gentiles. This is a mystery that was not seen in the Old Testament economy, but now has been made clear and will be revealed. I should not say it now has been made clear, but is going to be made clear. And this is the beginning of that demonstration that Gentiles will be included in the body of Christ. Acts chapter 10 the Apostle Peter is sent by God, you remember, to the home of the Roman centurion Cornelius. Peter journeys to Cornelius' house and he meets with the soldier, he meets with some of his relatives and some of his closest friends. Peter preaches the gospel to this assembled group. We go to the end of the chapter, chapter verse 39 of chapter 10. Acts 10 and verse 39. Peter's preaching about Christ and says, verse 39, "...we are witnesses of everything He did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed Him by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him from the dead on the third day and caused Him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead." He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Here again we see belief. Here we see becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And with that repentance comes this forgiveness of sin. Now notice verse 44. While... While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Later, Peter will make it very clear that this was just as the Spirit had come on these Jews earlier in Acts chapter 2. Same experience, same event, same type of event. In all of the Old Testament Scriptures, Peter has said, they have been bent toward, pointing toward Christ. And now here as he closes out his sermon, these people respond in believing faith and are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And notice the response, or the reaction to this earlier response on the part of the Gentiles, verse 45. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, that is the Jews who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. They were astonished. They did not see this one coming. They could have seen it coming had they read the Old Testament properly. But they did not, and this was part of the work that Jesus was doing to teach them how to read the Old Testament. They didn't see this coming, they were blindsided by this at this moment, but they could not argue with the experience. It was right there before them. They heard them, 46, speaking in tongues and praising God. That's what the Jews had done in Acts 2. They had spoken in tongues as a sign that the Spirit had, in fact, baptized them those earlier Jews, and now this is taking place with the Gentiles. So what is the conclusion? Peter says, the end of verse 46, verse 47, "...can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few, them for a few days." Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Kind of parallel to that wedding statement, isn't it? Is there anybody here who has just cause why this couple should not be married? There's sort of that uncomfortable silence, which is good, but nobody speaks. I can guarantee the the, the discomfort of that silence was ratcheted pretty high right here. Can anybody say, can anyone give just reason why these Gentiles should not be baptized? This is a tough swallow for these Jews to understand what God is doing, but no one speaks. And Peter says, let them be baptized. They have received the Holy Spirit, let them be baptized. It's a logical conclusion. Peter is saying, essentially, if God has chosen to baptize them in the Holy Spirit, what should stop us from baptizing them in water? One commentator says it this way, Why should the sign be withheld from those who were possessed of the thing signified? Or again, to use a wedding analogy, as a couple exchanges vows in a legal wedding ceremony, what in the world is to stop us from giving them a wedding certificate? They've done the act. They have contracted in wedding covenant with one another. Of course you give them a wedding certificate. These individuals have repented and believed and been baptized by the Spirit of God. There's unimpeachable evidence they are speaking languages that they've never studied. A miraculous gift from God to attest to the fact that they have been baptized in the Spirit of God. Who is going to raise any objection to their being baptized in water? Spirit baptism followed by water baptism. Now notice here, I'd like us to hone in just a little bit. It says here that they are baptized in the name of Jesus. Verse 48, So they ordered them that they should be baptized in the name of Jesus. That is, as one is said, by His authority, professing faith in Him, vowing obedience to Him. There is a sense, then, in which baptism points backwards to our Holy Spirit baptism. When we bring someone into the waters of baptism, we always want to see that they understand they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They have been saved, is another way of saying that. But baptism also points forward. Being baptized in the name of Jesus is saying that you are, from this point on, identified with Jesus Christ. He is the center of your life. We are baptized in the name of Jesus. Now let's consider that word baptized. Let's land on that now for a few moments. Honest Lutheran. Reformed and Catholic theologians all readily admit in their commentaries that the Greek word translated baptize means immerse. You will find no Lutheran, Reformed, or Catholic scholar that's not honest with that truth. Well, if you do, they will not be honest with a lot of other things. But I've read them all. They're all honest. It means to dunk. It means to immerse in water that is what the word meant in its ancient context that is how it is always used now i have read from a reformed perspective and a lutheran perspective some who have argued from the old testament text in two places in leviticus chapter 14 where a ritual is being described in which the blood of a bird is killed and that bird's blood is set aside, a second bird is dipped in the blood of that first bird. And the argument is, in this obscure Greek translation of the Old Testament, you see there could not possibly be enough blood to immerse. And so the word baptize is used of something other than total submersion in a liquid. Well, number of points on that. First of all, these are two obscure passages that are in a Greek translation so it's not even inspired text it's just a Greek translation of the Hebrew text secondly you notice that the blood is not sprinkled on the bird but the bird is applied to the liquid granted the blood would not be sufficient to submerge the whole entire bird but the bird is being put down into the blood and what other greek word is available to say that well I don't think that it would be wise for us to draw our theology out of a translation of the Hebrew text on a very remote rite of dipping the one bird in the blood of another and to say that then informs us of how we should understand baptism. That is really stretching it. The other point, and far more importantly, is how the Greek word is commonly used is universally used in the New Testament, and that is of a submerging in water. Let's look at Acts chapter 8, where we see that so clearly. We're right there. Let's turn back to Acts 8 and verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Acts 8.26, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, "'Go to that chariot and stay near it.'" He runs along, he's invited up inside. The man is reading from Isaiah 53. By the way, that wasn't lucky. God knows what's going on here. Isaiah 53 puts the two together, and we jump to verse 36. "'As they traveled along the road, "'they came to some water, "'and the eunuch said, "'Look, here is water. "'Why shouldn't I be baptized?' And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, remembering that the word baptized means submerged, we see here language that fits that very beautifully in this example of actual baptism. We're not jumping back here into the Old Testament text and just looking for the word used in the Greek translation, where here in the original text, looking at an actual baptism, this word submerge is used, and they go down into the water. And as you see there, then they come up, verse 39, out of the water. They go down into the water, and they come up out of the water, I suggest because there is a submersion taking place here. It seems inconceivable to me that this eunuch is traveling through this hot and arid region, with not a drop of water on board, not enough water to sprinkle on his head in a ritual baptism. No, he stops at a body of water in order to be to go down into it and to come up out of it. So again, uh, immersion is clearly pictured. Now, even let me—we miss this in our culture, but it was into the 13th century before the Roman Catholic Church stopped immersing infants. Now you know you can immerse an infant without killing them, right? There's just this natural response, this inherent response on the part of a baby. Maybe I should say don't try this at home, but (laughs) you can. You can drop them down in the water and they hold their breath just on their own. You can drop a child down into water, submerge them in water, and, and again I don't take responsibility for anything that goes wrong if that doesn't work, but Uh, That The uh, Catholic Church, for hundreds and hundreds of years, immersed infants into the 13th century when sprinkling began to replace immersion. Nowhere, however, does the Bible ever picture parents taking baptismal vows for their children. It consistently shows believers witnessing to the reality of their own faith. What have we seen in the text? Holy Spirit baptism, coming as a response to an individual's repentance, followed by immersion in water. This is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Now, let me just add here quickly, some would say, now wait, you've got this wrong. The book of Acts is description, it's not prescription. And we would argue that very point. In other words, description. It's saying this is what happened. But it's not saying this is what you should do. Now, Eden Baptist, you as a church, you don't go around speaking in tongues in other unknown languages when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you understand that. That's because the Acts is description, but it's not prescription. It's not saying this is what you must do, and there's a very good point there. But some would take that then and say that's the same thing with water baptism. That's what they did in the book of Acts, but that's not what we are necessarily supposed to do. Well, just very briefly, I think the point is obvious, but there's a great difference here between someone speaking in tongues in the book of Acts and someone being immersed in water. What's the difference? Being immersed in water is something Jesus commanded us to do. There is no command of Jesus that we must speak in tongues. In fact, as Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we would anticipate that most wouldn't. If any should, is a whole other point. But Jesus commanded to be baptized. The other thing is, is when we go to the the accounts in Acts where individuals speak in tongues, people who say then we should speak in tongues don't do what they did in the book of Acts. They're doing something very differently than the actual accounts of tongue speaking in the book of Acts. When we go to the book of Acts, we're seeking in the area of baptism to do exactly what they did. So Jesus commanded it, and then we see the pattern for it in the book of Acts. We're striving to do exactly what is laid out for us here, and to be honorable to it. Why should anyone be baptized? Because Jesus commands it, because the early church practiced it, and fill in there the details of how they practiced it, what it meant, and how it went together. What does it mean? Very quickly, I do not want to linger here at all, but Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What does baptism mean? I think much of that has been answered already, but let me just add this word to that discussion. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? The idea, of course, is that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So should we go on sinning? By no means. We died to sin, verse 2. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now many argue that this passage refers only to spirit baptism. has nothing at all to do with water baptism And I would say spirit baptism is certainly in view here. It is only through spirit baptism that one can be saved and only after spirit baptism that one should be baptized. But I think it is very clear as we look at the book of Acts and as we study the New Testament documents, I see no reason to separate the rite of baptism which symbolizes the spiritual reality of salvation demonstrated through the baptism of the Spirit. Going down into the water then is a physical testimony showing others that I have spiritually died with Christ to the life of sin. Coming up out of the water is a physical testimony showing others that I have spiritually risen with Christ to live a new life in Him. So we are following the command of Jesus, we are following the pattern of the New Testament church, and we are following the spiritual symbolism of the salvation that Jesus Christ gives when we come into the waters of baptism. Baptism symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ, with his death and with his resurrection. Secondly, baptism identifies a believer with the church. Remember this back in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, they who received his word were baptized and they identified themselves with that early body of believers. And this idea always seems to go together. Those who accepted the message were baptized and were added to their number that day. In baptism, there is an identification with Christ and there is an identification with a body of believers of some sort in some way, shape, or form. Now let's consider ourselves in light of the Biblical truth that we know very well. I said at the start that some of you are not ready to be baptized. And what I mean by that is that your salvation is not sure. You do not have a confidence that you belong to Jesus Christ. Or you really don't understand baptism yet it still is not making sense to you as to why we should do this or maybe there's even some wrong motivation for being baptized I cannot discern and read your heart but you need to be very cautious not to be baptized before its time you need to know that you've been baptized by the Spirit that you are saved that you know Jesus as your personal Savior and I think we could add as well that there needs to be a belief on your part and a commitment on your part to walk with Jesus Christ. Sometimes there are children who are baptized who have never had a chance to stand for Jesus. They have been protected in their home and in their church and in their uh, larger family, and immediate family, from ever having to make a decision to do right in the face of the world. I don't know where that comes and where that day is for every individual. I would not try to prescribe that. But I think there needs to be some evidence that a person is willing to stand for Jesus against the world. To some degree. And a child can be very young in that area. But some are not ready. Now, I hasten to move to the second and to say that some of you need to obey Jesus on this matter. You know that you are saved... You know your life belongs to Christ forever, that you will follow him because you belong to him. You need to do what Jesus is calling you to do. That third category, and certainly the predominant number here, I think, would be all of us who need to appreciate what we have. What we're striving to do here today is just to work together on this one Sunday, and we'll not probably do it, the last time was seven years ago, because we do this repeatedly when people are baptized. But it was seven years ago that I spoke on this in this assembly. We don't do this very often, but we need to defend the faith. We need to understand why we believe in believers' immersion. It is a biblical doctrine, and we want to uphold it, to maintain it, and to be aware of it. Secondly, I hope that as we just consider this again today, that it will increase the attention, in fact, even the enthusiasm that we put to the baptisms that take place in our church. When someone comes to a place of baptism, we need to know that this is something that is very profound, that Christ has given us, a demonstration of this person's love for Jesus Christ and commitment to follow him. We need to come to that event and participate in it, knowing that this person is identifying with our assembly and welcoming them into that assembly and into that life of following Jesus Christ in this unique way. But let me stop and land hardest on that third point for those of us who know this, who have experienced baptism, and that is an appreciation of the freedom that we have. I've told this story before, but I believe it pictures, just brings us into not a dramatic story in some respects, it could be much more dramatic. I could tell you stories of Anabaptists who were thrown from Uh, hay wagons down onto spikes and and impaled because they believed in this truth. Those that were burned at the stake, those that were repeatedly dunked until they drowned as a sadistic joke on their belief in water baptism. We could become very sensational about all this and, in fact, very real about it. People have suffered horribly for this belief. But I'd like us just to think in terms of one of the later Experiences. This is 1714. Now that might seem a long time ago to us as Americans when everything's moving so fast, but 1714 is not all that long ago in the history of humanity. We go to Solingen, Germany. Six men on this morning go to the banks of the Wupper River. They're members of the Reformed Church at Solingen by virtue of their infant sprinkling. All six of them had been baptized as infants and brought into the church, but here they are at this river this day. They had been searching the very passages of Scripture that we've been searching today. And they came to the very conclusion that I've sought to lay out before you and that we embrace as a church. That God is saying that we are to be baptized after we have been baptized in the Spirit, after we have repented, after we've been saved. And that baptism is to be by immersion. They're reading the Scriptures in a world where nobody hardly believes that. They're seeing this truth. There's some people with these six men and they are called immersionists. They are those who have themselves been immersed in water and are going to baptize these six men. Now they know what they're doing is illegal, if you can imagine. We don't understand this as Americans. Religion is your own business, and you can be whatever, just about, and nobody really thinks a whole lot about it. But when you go back to Germany in the early 18th century, what you thought about religion was very important. It could lead to death, there was much suffering. As a matter of fact, this is a little aside, but I spent this last week learning from a man who, in Canada, suffered physical persecution for his belief in baptism in the 1950s. Just in Canada, in the 1950s, but back to the 1700s. These men, were what they were doing was illegal. Why is it illegal? They live in a Lutheran state. And in this Lutheran state, you, become, you come into the church and are identified with the church at infant baptism. And it was illegal for them to be immersed in water. Again, that just misses us. Why, what Would anybody care if they want to be immersed in water? But in their day, it was a problem. These men went down into that river and were in fact baptized, returned to their church and their families, and everything was fine for three years. Then on February 26, 1717, they were arrested, bound in ropes, and hauled off to a prison. Three days walking, bound together with ropes. Three days forced march to a prison, three years after they were immersed. There a very kindly Jesuit priest, a Roman Catholic priest, tried to persuade them to repent. He even, who knows if he meant it, he even said they were right about biblical interpretation. But very gently said, men, save your necks. Submit to the authority of the church. Renounce your baptism and rely again upon your infant baptism. This was their remark. One of them made the statement for the group apparently as it's recorded. They said this, We consider the Holy Scriptures as sufficient and superior to church tradition. It is enough that our doctrine and faith are grounded according to the Holy Scripture on the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ answering this Roman priest who believed that salvation came by the church, through the church. They said salvation comes through Jesus Christ. If we have Him, we have all we need. We don't need your documents. They were put into solitary confinement in cold cells, and weeks passed. Finally, they were called again before the priest and encouraged to repent. In the background... For effect, they heard the cries of a man and his wife who were being tortured in a cell. They knew what was coming, but they refused to yield. Later, they were summoned before a Lutheran minister, and they met with several Reform pastors from their own tradition who tried to persuade them to renounce their rebaptism and embrace infant baptism once again. They refused. Time continued to slip away, so they brought the three heads together. Representatives from the Reformed, from the Lutheran, and from the Catholic traditions, and said, what are we going to do with these people? The Roman Catholics said, there's only one answer, and that's to kill them. The Lutheran said, let's make them galley slaves. The Reformed said, Let's imprison them indefinitely as day laborers. And that was the choice, the more gracious which was set upon them. December 1st, 1717. Six months after their imprisonment, they were sent to prison in Julich for life. And while they were there, they suffered innumerable injustices as they performed manual labor in unspeakably difficult circumstances for four years. They had families. They had loved ones. They had jobs to do. But here they were now, almost five years later, in prison. In God's gracious mercy, this one ended well at least as far as life is concerned for them and their families. The government of the Netherlands secured their release and they were banished from their homeland of Germany for life, but at least they were given their lives. This account was retold by one of the men that suffered in all of this. And by retelling his story, as I mentioned at the beginning, I just draw one small cup out of an ocean of suffering endured by God's people who have held to the doctrine of believer's baptism over the years. Now, I say 1717 because that's a place in time when things were beginning to change. It was not long until there was this little country across the ocean by the name of the United States of America today that granted something called religious freedom. Right up until that day, there were people who suffered physically for being baptized. Many, much more horribly than these. Now why is all of this? What was going on in Europe? What was going on that led to all of this persecution? It's a complicated history. Belief in infant baptism finds much of its foundational support back to the writings of the Bishop Augustine, who's a Hero and a villain depending on who you are and what side of the issues you're on. And he's a hero for everybody and he's a villain for everybody. Roman Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. One of my favorite reads in all of church history, but he said a lot of bad things. And this was one. He began to teach about infant baptism and even suggested sprinkling there at that early time. For the next 1,200 years, the Roman Catholic Church held sway over Western culture and ecclesiastical laws were enforced by civil authorities who expressly forbid rebaptism. To baptize a believer after he'd already been baptized by the Roman Church as an infant called into question the authority of the Church and the efficacy of infant baptism unto salvation. And the Reformers, the Protestants, picked up that very same thought. The Reformed and the Lutheran traditions. Let me go back in time, fairly far in all of this, to an emperor, uh, uh, Honorius and Theodosius II, two emperors at that time, 413, I've read this before, but they said, If any person is convicted of having undertaken the rebaptism of a member of the Catholic Church, the one who has committed this shameful crime, together with the one, provided he is of accountable age, who has allowed himself to be persuaded thereto shall be punished with death without mercy. How would you like to read that in the newspaper tomorrow? How would you like to read that in the newspaper tomorrow and have a child that was considering immersion? That's what Christians have faced. And there are some in some places today if, they're, if they permit their child to be immersed and it is done in a public fashion, who will be punished, imprisoned, and may die there? What a horrible decision to have to make. We jump way up to the time of the Reformation. Emperor Charles V... Roman Catholic Emperor 1529 said, We, Charles, they talked that way back then. The we is him. He doesn't have a mouse in his pocket. We, Charles V, by the grace of God, elected Roman Emperor by common law, it is ordered and provided that no one who has once been baptized over again or a second time or shall himself baptize such and one, and in the imperial laws in particular so to do is forbidden under penalty of death. Yet do we find daily that contrary to the promulgated common law and also to our mandate issues, such ancient sects of the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, condemned and forbidden many hundreds of years ago more and more advances and spreads. Therefore we renew the foregoing imperial laws, that all and every Anabaptist and rebaptized man or woman of intelligent age shall be sentenced and executed by fire, sword, or the like. And such persons who of themselves or after instruction and exhortation immediately acknowledge their error, retract the same, are ready to accept penance and punishment thereof and beg for grace, may be pardoned by their rulers. We will also that each, later in the document, we will also that each shall have his children baptized in their youth, according to Christian order, custom, and usage. But whoever despises this and will not do it, in the belief that infant baptism is nothing, the same shall, if he dares to persist therein, be subjected to the above-noted constitution, that is, death. It's a sad but true fact that the reformers who saw clear on justification by faith and the doctrines of grace and salvation apart from the church held the same belief. They couldn't see clear on it. And also rejected those who rejected infant baptism. Or persecuted those who rejected infant baptism. and so. Even after the Evangelical Church was freed from the clutches of Rome, those who held the believers' baptism were persecuted. We draw an example from the 1700s. Although it had passed out of law, we can draw examples from the 20th and 21st centuries also of those who have suffered simply by identifying with Jesus Christ. Can I go back to those who aren't ready? In God's grace, we don't have to suffer for baptism. But if you'd have to honestly say, if I was under threat of death to be immersed, I wouldn't do it. There's no way. I don't think you're ready. We've got to be willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Now, I'm not saying that you have to say I wouldn't be scared. I'm not saying that you have to say I'm, I'm doubtful that I'd make it. But I'm just saying that you have to say I would want to entrust myself to the power of Jesus Christ to give me the strength to be baptized, knowing that I might come out of that water and be put in prison and be killed. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that because that's my opinion. Jesus said, If you want to follow me, then you must take up your cross and follow me. Someone who picked up their cross and started walking with it, they weren't gonna get better. We talk about a cross being an illness or a relative that makes us irritated. That's not a cross. When you picked up a cross in the ancient world, you didn't come home. And we need to be so committed to Jesus Christ, not because the strength is within us, but because he said, come after me, take up your cross, and follow me. There are so many through church history who have done so. And I trust, I repeat this often, I realize as I do with the Lord's Supper, there are two ordinances, we do them over and over again, you're going to have to repeat some words. But I hope that as we come to baptism and to our subsequent baptisms, that those who submit to baptism are saying, I have died with Jesus Christ. I don't live to self-interest any longer. I have risen with Him to new life. And if I need to die for Him, I'll lay down my life. With His power and strength and by His grace helping me, I will lay down my life for Jesus. And I hope that those of us who come to witness those so baptized would gather as a church on those times and realize What a privilege is ours to watch a baptism in freedom and safety. And to know that there are people throughout history who have died, who have died to do what we do without thinking. Well, let's at least think. And let's thank God for the privileges He's given us. Wherever you land in this whole topic, I trust that if there's any offense, that it would be the offense of Scripture and not me. Please look through me and look to the Word of God. I trust if God stirred something in your heart, that He will have done a work in us today as we talk about something that we know very, we're very familiar with it, but that he would do a work in our heart to allow us to be committed to what he desires for each of us to do, whether that's to die or whether that's to live. May we do so for his glory and for his honor. Let's bow for prayer and ask him for help in our weakness to do just that. Our Father God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for who you are, for your power, and for the glory of following your ways. Our Father, I pray that we would have the courage and the strength to live for you, how weak we are, how fearful. And how glutted on ease. I pray, God, in your mercy that you will stir our hearts at least to be thankful for what we have in this country, the freedoms that have been won for us through the blood of armies and through the hand of providence that you have brought us to this freedom, to this security, to this privileged place in history. Dear God, I pray also that you will work in the heart of those not ready for baptism and that you will deepen them so that they are ready. For those that need to be moved, I pray that you will move them. For all of us, God, that we would pause in this moment and give you thanks for the glory of water baptism. As with the Lord's Supper, these two ordinances, symbolic, physical acts that are mind-boggling to us, but beautiful, and we thank you for them. Please move us as you see fit to follow you. In the name of Christ I pray, Amen.